This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The Supreme Court has just concluded a term like no other, weathering a pandemic, welcoming a new justice amid a rough election year, and finding ways to address contentious issues like the 2010 healthcare law and voter access. As things get kinda, sorta back to normal, we're on retirement watch for Justice Stephen Breyer, and we're also bracing for the court's next term, where cases concerning abortion and gun rights will be heard. Todd Ruger, our senior writer who covers the courts and the judiciary for CQ Roll Call, is here to discuss. Hello, Todd. Hi, Jason. How are things going with you? Uh, Everything's great. The term has finally ended, which ends a very busy season for for legal reporters. And uh, we're now moving into uh, the Supreme Court has three months basically off. Well, they, they, uh, this is where the, the justices go and they talk to colleges and, and, uh, uh, and legal societies and so forth uh, and, and gear up for, you know, what could be a, a, a big term. Let's, let's talk about the last term first before we get into some of the stuff that we're looking for in the next term. Um, I mean, when the pandemic started in, in the spring of last year, you know, the, the, the court was in its sort of, they were rounding third base, if you will. I mean, they, they were um, heading to, you know, like they usually, you know, the terms always end in the middle of the summer in June, late June, early July. And, um, you know, they, they had to abruptly like figure out what we all did, uh, how to meet and hear cases via Zoom or Google chat or just by telephone and to deliberate, you know, deliberate on, you know, the, on the cases. And, but this was the first full term where none of the cases were heard uh, in person. It was, I mean, just talk about how weird that was because, you know, you, you, you know, will, would go to the court uh, itself to hear some of the high profile cases. Was it weird? Was that like a part of your life that was just kind of gone? <laughs> yes. I mean, for, for um, people, not only for people who cover the court uh, like I do, but for lawyers, uh, a lot of people that argue in front of the justices, it was strange. Um, we, we learned at the end of the, the t- term, two terms ago, when they started doing telephone arguments, and those arguments were broadcast live, um, that anybody could tune in, and a lot of people did. And uh, that created these, this weird dynamic that you didn't have in oral arguments in person, um, where justices could pick up on each other's threads of questions. Um, here it was basically, you know, a couple of minutes for one justice, a couple of minutes for the next justice, a couple of minutes. We heard more from uh, Justice Thomas, for example. And so this year, with this term, when they started in, in October, they already kind of had that down and they, they you know, they, they moved through it very quickly. But you lose um, a lot of that. And, and in the middle of all that, you had in, in November uh, a brand new justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And so they had a term where they were um, moving, you know, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. President Donald Trump appointed Amy Coney Barrett, and that moved the court from 5-4 to 6-3 with a conservative, for the conservative advantage. So you had a new court with a new justice, with a new ideological balance, 
uh, and none of them were working in person together. Uh, and so you just had uh, a dynamic where, where the court was trying to feel its way through a new situation without uh, being able to, to work with each other in person, the, the, the Supreme Court being closed. Uh, and then you had a situation where at the end of the term, they're handing out all these decisions uh, and anybody can, anybody can get them at the exact same time as anybody else. They're just posted online. And that's changed a lot of the dynamic around um, how, how the cases are reported and, and how they're analyzed and, and how they're uh, immediately interpreted. Yeah, I, I mean, I was struck that, you know, during the first uh, challenge to Obamacare, the 2010 healthcare law, uh, back in 2012, you know, we had this sort of spectacle of people grabbing the opinions from the court, running down the steps to waiting television cameras and reporters and people reading the, you know, just trying to get like the gist of what was going on, which led some people to actually get get it wrong. Uh, and then you contrast that with, you know, we, we had a second uh, uh, Obamacare challenge turned away a few years back, and then you, and then this current term, the the biggie, uh, if if you will, was was um, whether you know they would overturn it again, whether they would allow the whole law to be struck down because the tax penalty had been uh, put to zero. And and you're right, there was no running. <laughs> First of all, it's all fenced off, uh, so it's kind of difficult. Um, so you'd need high hurdlers, I think, to uh, for that to happen. And and we all got it at the same time. And, and uh, you know, so just, you know, the, the physical aspects of getting cases heard, getting the decisions has changed, as, as you mentioned, and, th- and people's cues are different. Like, as you said, Clarence Thomas spoke more this term than he may have in the last 30 years, it almost seemed. And everybody, you know, could, could tune in at the same time, which has not been the case uh, because the Supreme Court has been criticized for years for not televising its proceedings and not allowing the public in. Um, so all that changed a lot. Let, let's let's also talk about like some of the substance of that though. Let's get to, specifically to the Obamacare case. This was um you know a, a long shot legal challenge by Republican uh, attorneys general to overturn the law uh, after the uh, Congress had zeroed out the tax penalty uh for um for not carrying insurance. And so this had been working through the courts and but we didn't see the same kind of fractious Five four decision. Like, talk about that case because that's that's a big change too. Uh, right. So, I mean, the, the the situation that the Supreme Court came into this case with is not only were the Republican led states um, looking to to wipe out the whole law based on this one uh, provision being unconstitutional now that the mandate had been zeroed out, but the Trump administration had backed that, and during Amy Coney Barrett's very contentious confirmation hearing um, right ahead of the, gen- the November elections, presidential election, the Democrats' main, you know, one of their main things they kept hitting on was that this health care case was there and Donald Trump wanted to wipe out uh, the health care law and Amy Coney Barrett was going to help him do that in this very case that, that your, you know, you, you know when, when they had the vote, they put up poster boards of people who would lose their coverage on if, if the, you know, some of these really popular provisions of the law were wiped out. Um, and so you, you had a really political fight um, about this case going into it. And when they actually heard the case, a couple of justices went out of their way to, to you know, Chief Justice Roberts being one of them, 
uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, another Trump appointee being another one. They went out of their way to to say during oral arguments, like, I don't think that this, you know, the whole law needs to be wiped out. Even if we find this one small thing unconstitutional, uh, we can we can use this term called severability, which is a long legal legal doctrine um, where you, you find an, if if the rest of the law can stand, then the courts will find a way to just excise the unconstitutional part and let the full law stand. And so there was a, a sign early, um, this, this case was argued in November, it was uh, a sign early that, that the court wasn't interested in wiping out the whole law, but it still took them all the way until June to issue that ruling. And when they finally issued it, they issued it uh, seven to two, and it was written by Justice Breyer, who's on the liberal wing of, of the ideological balance of the court. And um, it was on uh, something called standing, whether these states even had the right to bring this lawsuit in the first place. Um, and and the, the court seven to two agreed that they did not have it. So they didn't even have to get into whether or not that the, there was a constitutional issue and whether or not that constitutional issue would then wipe out the rest of the law. So they found this very narrow way to, to get a broader consensus than any, either of the big Obamacare challenges previously. Uh, which were five, four, and six, three. This was seven, two, broader, um, and, and really on that big case where everybody was focused on how political the court would be with the six, three conservative majority. They found a way to for it to be seven, two, and and when you you, you know if you think about, um, I was thinking about this today on my run where I, I thought, okay, if you took if you if you gave Mitch McConnell six six senators to put on a case and you gave uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, three to put on a case, would that case ever come down 7-2 to save the law? Probably not. You know, So you have a, a way to, uh, that the court has tried to identify itself as a legal institution rather than a political institution when there's all this energy uh, from the left on, on should we expand the court? Should we change the court? There's a White House commission on it. There's legislation to, to move it to 13 members. Um, and so you had the court, I think, sending a signal there that we're based on law and not politics. And and that seemed to be, I mean, there were there were more, um, there seemed to be more opinions that were like that. That's obviously the highest profile one, which is why, you know, we we want to talk about it. But I mean, and it, of note, again, here's Clarence Thomas, you know, again, Clarence Thomas joined in the majority, <laughs> um, you know, somebody who has, has, has typically been associated with you know the the more conservative block uh, of the court, uh, an appointee of, of uh, President George H. W. Bush, uh, and and he he joined and said like yeah there is the these states that do not have standing they they nobody is getting hurt by having to not pay any money uh, <laughs> uh, as a uh, as a penalty for not carrying insurance which was the the provision that was at stake but it seemed that they. You know, the, and you've written, you know, accordingly for for uh, you know for our illustrious publications that like this this was kind of the defining uh, way that they that they seemed to forge ahead on most everything, which was they found ways for people to join in, um, and like they they found ways to get almost everybody uh, in in the majority on this, which is something that you said that Roberts has been particularly. 
uh, interested in is is trying to depoliticize and de you know like kind of stigmatize uh, the court as this just political uh, engine. D- uh, Donald Trump uh, was not pleased. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he released a statement saying that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh had let him down, which is exactly the kind of thing that Roberts just probably you know wakes up in a sweat at night when he when he thinks about like that presidents would just you know be able to know exactly what they would get in a in a justice. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting to think about the the court finding its footing and in, in in transition because um you know, a lot of those cases we did see um them try to work uh together to to get a broader coalition um and you did see some in some cases where the middle sort of held where um Chief Justice Roberts uh would bring along maybe Kavanaugh, uh maybe Barrett for the middle where um you know, a to, uh, elites, Justices Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch would be on the right saying we didn't go far enough. And I think it's important to, to when we talk about this to keep in mind that this is a conservative court and it has been for decades and it's even more conservative now. So th- that's not to say like just because they're finding places to get together that it's not conservative because it is. And then the other sort of warning signal here for the direction the court is going is that a lot of the cases that they heard this term uh, were uh, agreed, they agreed to hear prior to Justice Barrett joining the court, prior to there being 6-3, when the Chief Justice still had um, a a, a lot of sway in which cases the court might hear. Um, And so these these cases aren't pushing as far to the conservative side as as some conservative people would have hoped. and and what you have now is uh, the court taking up a couple of cases that are really looking like they're going to could be major steps to the right for next term, one on abortion, one on um, gun rights. And so we, we still don't really have a good sense of exactly where the court's going. I mean, Barrett um, has only done a few decisions now. You know, there's only a couple do- or, you know, like 54 decisions this term, something like that. So we haven't really seen, you know, her full scope of, of how she's going to approach things. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh has only been on there a couple of years. So I think all of this is still, you know, in this big feeling out phase, but definitely going to the conservative way. And it wasn't all, you know, milk and honey either, you know, with with, uh, with the cases. I mean, the, the, there was a very notable exception uh, to the, um, you know, Democrats versus Republicans, basically, like Democratic appointees versus Republican appointees that came down to the very last uh, part of the term. And that was uh, a couple of decisions on uh, access to voting and voting rights. And that's where we saw uh, some of the the spleen venting, if you will, uh, and frustration, uh, particularly among uh, the the Democratic appointees, that they they that was where it does did not seem that there was any chance of anybody crossing you know the aisle to to seek common ground. Let's talk about those those cases. Well, I think the big one is the the voting rights case, which was about two laws in Arizona uh, related to access to access to voting and, and ballots, um, you know, ballot collection uh, ban and uh, about, you know, if you vote in the wrong precinct, whether you get another chance. And, and so what you, what you have is the Voting Rights Act, which was um, in 2013 through a Supreme Court decision, uh, one of the main mechanisms for enforcing Voting Rights Act was, was stripped from um, 
from the ju- Justice Department, which was right. they got to pre-clear right. any changes to the law, such such as the you know the Arizona law. In it, yeah, in in states in states that had a history of racial discrimination. Right. Um, so they got Ar- to, Arizona, the South, you know, and so forth. Yeah. Right. Right. So they got to the Justice Department got to see these laws and and stop them from going into effect prior uh, to them going into effect. And um, and then when when that was gone, then the Justice Department and civil rights groups, voting rights groups had Section 2 left. And Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act lets them challenge um, discriminatory laws. And and that's what they did in this case in Arizona. Um, it was a little bit controversial whether it was a good strategy or not. And it got to the Supreme Court and it turned out to be bad because the decision um, that the Supreme Court did uh, weakens the the way that these, these groups can bring lawsuits um, under Section 2. So you've got Section 5, um, no longer there, and now Section 2. And that decision came down um, 6-3 along ideological lines uh, at a time when there are, are many lo- many states putting in new new restrictions, people say restrictions, on, on voting. Um, they're, they're restrictions. They're, well, they're, right, they're, they're, they're restricting people's, you know, ability to mail in or vote, you know, where they, you know, where they may have, I mean, they're, we don't have to dance around the fact that they're trying to restrict like access, <laughs> like sure. you know, well, whether that's a good thing or not, you know, is, is a question we can leave for our listeners, but these are restrictive measures well, that, that are coming from these states. I would say they're changing, right? So either, either whether you think they're good or bad or, or good against fraud or, or bad against, you know, discriminatory against minorities, they're changing. And when these laws change, uh, groups from both sides can challenge them if they think they're discriminatory. And um, and those are the kind of things that are going, going to be going through the courts here soon. And what the Supreme Court uh, laid out was, was not a specific test for what these cases would have to prove, but it made it really, uh, you know, sort of a hard target to meet uh, to show this, and and the the one of the things that the the majority wrote, uh, which the opinion was written by Justice Alito, uh, very you know one of the more conservative members of the court, basically said that one of the things that states need to do is make sure there's no fraud in elections, and so if you know to the extent that their their motive is fraud, if it disproportionately affects certain. Um, you know, socioeconomic or racial groups, um, they, the, you sort of have to give the benefit to the government that's trying to run a fraud-free election. And that, that's one of the more uh, contentious parts about that decision is that um, it sort of goes into the whole uh, claims of fraud from Trump in the last election. And, and these states are all putting in these measures that they say are against fraud. But uh, like, for instance, in Georgia, put uh, after the election, a lot of pressure there uh, from Trump about whether this, the election was fair. Well, they put in a, a big new elections bill and the Justice Department has now filed a lawsuit to try to strike it down. And the Justice Department has said that it's discriminatory. So um, what the Justice Department has to prove now is even harder uh, to, to get to, to show. And so um, the, the effect of that, I don't think is going to be felt until these cases start going through because the Arizona laws, you know, they were, they were there, but this is, this case was more about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and there's a lot of doom from, from voting rights advocates. And let's talk about what's, you know, what we can expect in this next term. I mean, because we, you know, we, again, we, 
I think you can make a very good case that the, so to speak, ha ha ha, get it, make a case. (laughs) Um, That they, you know, this was sort of a trial run for this new court, um, but they didn't have to deal with some very sticky issues, you know, like gun rights uh, and and abortion rights. But they have agreed to hear a couple of those cases uh, in in this coming year. So this could be, this could be a, a big term uh, that that starts uh, on in in October, right? Right. I mean, th- this this term we didn't see the kind of sort of landmark decisions like uh, you know legalization of uh, same sex marriage, for example. You know, like s- these cultural things. They're all sort of okay. This is this this could be very um, uh, determinative of voting rights cases in the future, you know, kind of thing. Or this bo- does not bode well for the amount of anonymous money in politics or you you know you could make these sorts sorts of things but nothing really solid well next term they have a couple of cases that could be very tangible uh effects on on national life um one of them is a uh, abortion case out of mississippi and it deals with um the 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 time period for when you can get an abortion and viability and a lot of the law depends on, you know, the Roe v. Wade is the, 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 the decision from 1973 that first established the right to an abortion. And um, people that, that have looked at this issue for, for years in the law say that the Supreme Court could not just explicitly overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, that, that's a possibility anytime they've opened up the, a case to abortion, but also they might just erode some of these standards that have underpinned Roe v. Wade for a long time. And then the states themselves could pass more restrictive laws that then, um, you know, restricting the the time that you can get an abortion. There's also uh, abortion uh, laws proposed at states about, you know, the reason that you get an abortion. And, and so this decision could really open the door for a lot of those, even if it doesn't explicitly overrule Roe v. Wade. So that one could change the landscape a lot, especially state by state. And then there's a, another um, case out of New York about uh, Second Amendment rights, which is, you know, in a couple of in a pair of cases about a decade ago, the Supreme Court said that that we have the constitutional right to defend ourselves using a firearm in our home. So we have the right to possess a, uh, a gun in our home. But it limited it to the home. And so states have passed in, in the decades since all sorts of gun laws. And uh, some of those are about concealed carry and whether you can carry, uh, whether you can get a license to carry a weapon outside of your home. And um, that's what this case is about. And it, it for the first time, the court could expand the right to own a gun and possess a gun outside of the home. Um, which, you know, that, and then you have a lot of these schemes state by state differ on how you can get a concealed carry uh, permit. And so it could, it could change the landscape there. You never know how far it might go in when, when they open up the second amendment uh, you know, what, what they might say in that ruling and how, how it might open up other, other gun laws, because for, for a decade, they haven't taken any cases such as, you know, um, assault weapon bans by cities or bans on the size of um, magazines. uh, You know, some of these, these gun safety things, they just haven't weighed in. And uh, it's caused a lot of consternation on the very uh, conservative side of the court. Um, so now they have that case. 
and 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 will know. And and it's important to also know that those cases, um, if they hear them and they decide them by the end of the term in June, will sort of be in the middle of political season for congressional races uh, coming into 2022 election. It's potentially like, you know, it can alter the landscape on a number of things that you said in national life, but also, you know, we, we've been kind of anticipating that Supreme Court politics could affect um, elections going back to 2016, going back to 20, you know, 2018, 2020, um, throughout the, you know, Trump years and the last Obama year. Um, and it, it's just kind of unpredictable. You know, it, it's, it's unclear what could happen, but it would certainly have, it would certainly be on people's minds if, you know, all of a sudden half the country, uh, you know, effectively outlaws abortion or if your, you know, concealed carry, you know, uh, license in a in a state that is has more liberalized gun laws is all of a sudden good in Chicago or New York City uh, or or Washington D.C. which have more restrictive laws. So it's a big it's a big thing. So lastly, uh, about this term, the um, you know the, the, so much of the Supreme Court politicking comes down to Republicans have really optimized their ability to get people on the court, even though um, they're <laughs> You know, they, they haven't held the presidency as often as Democrats in the last 30 years. Um, and so, and that's that's caused a lot of uh, heartburn uh, among among people who care, you know, on the, on the particularly on the liberal side. So Justice Breyer uh, is, uh, you know, was appointed by Bill Clinton. Uh, we were expecting, you know, that he, that he might be uh, a retiree candidate. And then, you know, potentially Clarence Thomas too. Neither, neither of them are young men uh, at, at this stage. And there is a, there's almost been a sort of a whisper kind of campaign to encourage Breyer to leave so that he doesn't die midterm and then get replaced by a, a Republican president or, um, or gets held up by a Republican majority in the Senate. Uh, and, and that did not happen <laughs> on, on either uh, with either Breyer or Thomas. Uh, and we are, we are, it, it's unclear if it will happen. Is that, is that your read on it too? Um, well, I, I mean, there, there's, um, there's like two types of information about this. There's speculation and informed speculation, <laughs> but it's all <laughs> speculation, you know. And and I think the 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 best way that I can read it is that um, Justice Breyer is now the most senior on the a justice on the liberal side. He gets to uh, when there's a dissent, uh, he he gets to pick who writes it, or he can take it for himself. Um, he also might. He also had a really good term um, this last term in that he wrote the major decisions of. Um, of the the case, including the Obamacare uh, case, and um, and so he might see himself as kind of an in, in integral part of that that left ideological part of the court. Um, also, uh, you know, if he retires next year, the 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 Democratic majority in the Senate could still have time to confirm uh, somebody to that vacancy before they lose control, if they do lose control in the November election. So, I mean, there's a number of months there and you now have the precedent of uh, Republicans who pushed through a, uh, a nominee right ahead of the presidential election. And so they, there will be no qualms, I don't think, on the Democratic side to, to rush through somebody in time. Um, the, the, you know, the thing that people bring up then as well, what if you know, something happens to the Democratic majority in the meantime. What if a senator dies? 
um, and is replaced by a Republican somehow. I mean, I, I guess, but I'm, I'm not sure how um, Justice Breyer would put that into his calculation. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he went out and made speeches about how, um, you know, the, the, at least one speech about how the Supreme Court is not a political institution. It's a legal institution. He was out there defending the court. And so his perception of the timing of his, his departure and everything, he doesn't want it to seem political. It might've seemed political at this point. And, and he's known as a pragmatist. And so um, maybe he thinks that the best thing for him to do with, you know, for one of his former clerks, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who was just confirmed by the Senate to the DC circuit, which is, um, you know, kind of sometimes referred to as the second most important uh, court in the, in the land. Maybe he says, I'll let her be there for one year and then she'll be a natural pick for uh, President Biden next year, who said he was going to appoint uh, the first black woman to the court. Um, so, uh, you know, all those things are out there. And, th- and, and, th- and I, I would add too that that is just music to Mitch McConnell's ears. He, he, he would love it. Uh, if he, uh, if, if, if they, this was not done in an organized fashion between Breyer and Biden, because that would just advantage him. So it's, it's, I mean, I, whether the court thinks that they're political or not, they basically are. I mean, because Americans think that they are and they're also selected in a political process. So, I mean, this is, this is the issue, you know, for a lot of people. And there is a clear, Republicans clearly view it as a political exercise. And when Democrats say that it's not a political thing, that's why Republicans usually win those battles. I mean, <laughs> that's I mean that, that's how they have. I mean, right. And and you have a lot of heartburn on the left because of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her decision to stay on the court in the late in the Obama administration, um, which uh, even though she had some health issues, there was a pushback then. And she stayed on for a long time uh, and until she died uh, last year. So, um, you know, you have you have a lot of heartburn. Of, uh, 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 people on the left have been in this situation before and they have seen it turn out badly. I mean, if Justice Ginsburg had had, um, you know, had lived another six months, uh, we would be having a, a, a Joe Biden pick. Uh, for the Supreme Court instead of a Donald Trump pick. So uh, a lot of that, I mean, a lot of where we're at with the court is just, you know, the craziness of the world. Uh, As you know, and as much as as Mitch McConnell uh, takes credit for that, uh, there and and his strategies and everything, and the Republicans absolutely played into that with Merrick Garland situation and the Amy Coney Barrett situation. As much as that is, it's also just the craziness of the world and how and how it works and and how it's played out in the last uh, five years. Well, uh, I think the craziness of the world is a good spot to leave uh, <laughs> this podcast and conclude it uh, because it's uh, we we do have a little bit of a break here uh, with with the with the court's term, but uh, it will I I predict more more craziness, uh, and so that's good because we get to cover it. Um, but thank you, Todd, for for uh, you know sort of downloading on the on you know the the term that was the term that's coming and also the you know the the elephant slash donkey in the room uh with uh, future retirements thanks much yeah always good to chat with you about it